So if you're flying through thermals, is it possible to fly at an airspeed that turned them into yeah. a max so, ground? Okay, so look, here's the question. Here's the question. A friend of mine was flying his 172 out across the desert mountains uh, of, of Nevada and Southern California, Wyoming, that kind of area um, down there. And he was and, – and so – and this is a whole different subject, by the way. He and I have text message conversations while he's flying, all right, okay. which is just a whole thing in and of itself, all right. But and I try to be really, really kind of aware of when he's like in a in a you know doesn't need to be bothered. But when he's when he's just droning across literally the desert, all right, we we t- chat, all right. And so one of the comments he made to me was um, that he was getting thermaled up and down, all right. He says he was just he and he, he liked it. He was having a good time, all right, um, and. And he said, he said, I, you know, ATC knows I'm doing. I, I, he wasn't on a flight. I, he might have been on flight following or something like that. I don't know how hard a, an altitude um, assignment he had, but he had let them know, and they said fine. You know, they gave him a couple thousand feet, and so he was like riding up and down and having fun traveling across the desert. And and I asked, I said, so is there a way to take advantage of this up and down in order to maximize ground speed? Oh yeah. And, and so that's my question. I, and I was trying to do the physics in my head, and I kept getting confused. David, it sounds like you know it for sure, and Jeb, you probably do too. Tell me, teach me. How how in that kind of an environment do you maximize ground speed? Uh, when you b- fly into a thermal, yeah, and the vertical speed indicator starts to swing into the positive territory, you push the nose down. To hold your altitude, your airspeed will go up. Your ground speed will go up. Now, wait. I'm sorry. When you're in the up, you push forward. You push the nose down when you're when when the thermal's trying to make you climb. Yes. Don't let it. Okay. To hold your altitude by pushing the nose down. Okay. And that, you you will you will gain speed. Uh, that makes sense. And then, is there some comparable thing you do when you get into the down draft? Well, you still try to hold altitude, but the opposite result occurs. It slows you down. Yeah. Okay. And and is the net effect you get more ground speed? Well, it depends on on the delta between right. how much up and how much down you fly. Sure. Through. Sure. Uh, all thermals, pretty much all thermals, have an outer layer of air that's moving down. That's because. The hot air that's in the middle of the thermal has climbed to an altitude where it's cooled to ambient, and now it's gotten heavier, and it flows over the sides, kind of like a, a a water fountain that shoots up through a single hose. So the, the, the air on the outside will will fall, but it will generally be a narrower band and slower than what's in the middle of the thermal. Mm-hmm. So the trick is to get through that as quickly as you can and then push the nose down to uh, take advantage of the thermal's effort to make you climb. And the net effect is generally you average out a little bit more speed, uh, and the net effect should be in the end that you stay plus or minus 50 feet of your cruise altitude. Right. So don't let it take you up and down. Don't let it take you up and down. Try and maintain altitude and within safe limits try and – you take whatever speed it gets you. And, and this is much easier in an airplane that doesn't have an autopilot working or turned on. 
The autopilot's going to try to, if it's got altitude hold, it's going to try to do the same thing. Oh, but it's going to do it by reducing power or increasing power or something like that. And typically, the autopilot can't. Uh, in a, in it can't personal, do power. personal airplanes, it's not an auto throttle system. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. Okay. Jeb, I'm sorry. Do you agree with this? Does this make sense to you? <clears throat> I understand what David's saying. Um, I've never seen it work out that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that, too. So here's my, my non-aviation-related uh, example. All right? uh, when I, in my younger days, I was a runner, um, I, and I would occasionally run competitively. I mean, not that I was competitive, but I would run for time against my own personal best, usually. And I always... And, and at first, I wondered about running uphills versus downhills and whether or not... You know, you, when you're running uphill, you slow down because it's harder. And when you're running downhill, you speed up because gravity's helping you out. And I did some measurements and, and, and whatnot over time and came to the conclusion that in running, and listeners who are runners are probably going to disagree with me on this, but in running, you gain more on the downs than you lose on the ups is what I discovered. All right. Um, and so the net effect of the hills was positive. All right, you you gain stuff, assuming you know, all other things being equal, of course. Um, and so that's one of the things I kept thinking about when my friend was talking to me about um, getting the thermals going up and down. Is is how that worked out. Um, Jeb, it doesn't work just because it's hard to do it well, or why does it not work? Do you think? Um, well, if if we're talking about the objective being a gain in ground speed over time Mm -hmm. flying through thermals um the only way i can really see that happening um is to push the nose down in in updrafts Mm -hmm. uh and um you know try to maintain whatever altitude you're at um and then when the sink part of the, the, the the thermal situation arrives i.e. Uh, a, a down, downward-trending um, column of air, mm-hmm. uh, you let it um, descend you. Let, it, let the altitude um, um, drop. Right. Ma- maintain whatever airspeed you have. Okay? Right. The problem is, and that will get you a net between the up and the down. That'll get you... <clears throat> Excuse me. That'll get you a net ground speed uh, increase. Right. The problem is you're not maintaining altitude. Right. Right. So the next updraft uh, you can use um, to increase your airspeed mm-hmm. as well as increase your um, um, altitude. Right. But there's no free lunch is the punchline. Yeah. Um, and... I have the other thing going on here too is turbulence. Um, these various um, up and down drafts flying through them, uh, if if they're strong and if they're close together, um, you can certainly get into an area where uh, it's turbulent. And most airplanes that we fly these days um, have a, a turbulence. Um, turbulent air penetration speed taps, um, or consider consider it a maneuvering the maneuvering speed um, that is w- much lower than the airplane's uh, optimal cruising speed. So if you're mm-hmm. going to 
go through a bunch of up and down drafts, you have to be wary of the turbulence factor, and you also have to um, uh, manage power, manage airspeed, manage altitude. It's a lot of work. I, I, there's no free lunch, and I just, I'm just not um, um, aware of a uh, a net ground speed increase over time in that environment my my experience has been exactly the opposite actually Mm -hmm. um where uh you get into a situation where um you're trying to maintain let's say you have you do have altitude hold engaged and uh the the best you could come up with might be a a break even the worst is you lose a few knots over time Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. hey you know yeah. Uh, um, uh, if, if Dave and I can't disagree on something like that, you know. well, David, David definitely talked to us about the about the uh, the physics of it. But David, this is your chance for a uh, January ignorant slut moment here. Um, yeah, d- does it does has it worked for you, David? Do you feel like it's been effective, or is it just a, you know uh, an interesting problem question? I, I, I can't say that it shortened a, any given cross country trip by a, a, a measurable amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in those periods when the thermal was nice and big and strong, I pick up a few miles an hour for the duration of that period, and then fly out of the backside of it and get the uh, the opposite effect. Usually for a shorter period of time. If it shortened my cross country trip by five minutes seven or eight minutes uh i'd be surprised mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah in seven or eight minutes on a on a you know say a, a two or three hundred mile cross-country trip that's pretty significant yeah when mm-hmm. you think about it yeah if you can do that more power to you um i just i do I think, know it works while you're in the midst of it because uh-huh. sure. I've, d- I've done it I've, I've never owned an airplane with an autopilot mm-hmm. so i'd fly into you know, and there's a difference between thermals and turbulence. It, this doesn't work in turbulence. You, right. You're chasing the airplane if you try to do it in the, turbulence. Right. But thermals, you can feel it strong. You can see the BSI go up. It just nudge the nose down until the BSI zeroes out. Your airspeed indicator will go up by a, a factor uh, that's dependent on how strong the thermal is lifting you. And for as long as it lasts, as long as I've ever had that something like that last was about a minute and a half or two minutes, mm-hmm. and that was that was a big thermal. I mean that that sucker was three four miles across, uh, and at one hundred and fifty miles an hour, that it takes that long to get through it. And for that period of time, I picked up a few knots. Uh, hit the downside of it on the going out the back. Lost a few knots for a, a very short period of time, and then was back into level air again, and and rechecking my trim to make sure that I'm trimmed for the altitude and airspeed that I want. Uh, but yeah, I've had it. I've had it work to the uh, to to the point of shortening a, a 700 mile trip by four or five minutes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over what the typical was. Okay. Okay. I've also had uh, trips where the tailwinds were so strong that I just ignored the thermals. You know, you just just go through it as long as you're not busting altitude, blast on through. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, 
something sailplane pilots and hang glider pilots do to to get the most glide out of any bit of altitude that they've gained? It's, it's when the thermal's pushing them up and they're not circling to climb. They push the nose down so they pick up a little speed going through that thermal. And mm-hmm. it, this is when you're racing to a goal or just trying to get back on the ground because Mother Nature is calling. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, that, that can happen. That can happen. Hmm. Although... Somebody. Was it Gordon Baxter had a solution to that problem? I don't know. Somebody had a solution to that problem that we won't we won't talk about right now. Maybe we will later on. Anyways, hey, welcome folks to uh, change the subject, Jack. Change the subject. You call welcome. that a segue? No, I don't. That was that was yeah, right. Well no, segue's folks. a funny two wheel vehicle you stand on. <laughs> Uncontrolled airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from high atop lookout point in beautiful Nottingham, New Hampshire, uh, where I am here in our virtual hangar talking to my two good friends. Uh, those voices out there, one of them from uh, the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas, that's Dave Higdon. Hi, David. What's going on? Uh, summer's going on, man. Yeah, I know. Isn't it nice, finally? Yeah, we've, we've already had two or three triple-digit days here this, uh, this month, and uh, uh, supposed to come just short of it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? Yeah, the 99 is what they're calling for high today. Uh, is it's, that hotter, good? it's hotter in Kansas than it is in Sarasota. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's not unusual. No, it's not. Well, sure, in, in certain times of year, absolutely. What's the humidity like, David? Is it, is it humid, a humid hundred or is it a dry hundred? Well, it's been kind of all over the map. Uh, three or four days ago, it was in the 90s and the humidity was up, up in the 60, uh, high 60% range and it was uh, not much fun. And the next day, it was <laughs> hotter. And the humidity was only down in the low 30% range, and mm-hmm. the south wind felt cool and dry by comparison. So uh, I haven't looked at it today, but the, the way it feels, I'm going to say it's in the uh, 40 50% range. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, hasn't gotten humid here yet. That's the, my big downfall these days ever since I returned from California is I have no tolerance for humidity. And uh, But that time of the season hasn't arrived here yet. Uh, and my other good friend here in our virtual hangar uh, from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, is Jeb Burnside. Morning, Jeb. How are you doing? I'm fine as frog fur. Okay. <laughs> and we all know how fine that is. That's right. Uh, I think. I, I don't know. Uh, see, again, it's, something it's else very it doesn't. Fine. Very, yeah, very it fine. depends on whether you've ever kissed a frog. Ah, uh, by fine, you mean you mean uh, a size. Her. I dated her. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Uh, what's going on, Jeb? I was just to? trying to get through another Thursday. Yeah. Um, um, looking at 68% humidity here today, and I yeah, think I that's probably a, um, um, how should I put this, um, a um, invalid prognostication. How's that? You think? Yeah. You think it's not going to get that high or it's oh, not going to get that low? I think it's going to get higher. Higher, right. See? Yeah. This is one of the reasons. I, you know, I mean, I love visiting you in the wintertime. Um, and, and every time I'm visiting in the wintertime, I said, I really, really want to visit sometime you know, other times of year as well. But one of the things that keeps me from, from you know, thinking too much about visiting you this time of year is because I don't like the humidity. I just think I'd be miserable. I just it would be, you know. Well, I, you know, I was... Sit by your pool and jump into it every half right. an hour. I was, I was talking to my handyman yesterday. We were both working in the hangar, and, and just sweat was just pouring off of us. Mm-hmm. And um, um, well, well, according to my uh, 
Wonderground weather map. Yeah. Fifty-three percent is the humidity here. So uh, fifty-three. Okay. I was yeah. in the ballpark. Yeah. yeah. It says sixty-eight here. But, yeah. Jeb, you got um, stepped on. So what did you and the handyman do? <laughs> do I really uh, want to know? Well, <laughs> basically, I just made the comment that if it wasn't for air conditioning, this state would be inha- uninhabitable. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. But. Uh, Although there's a, there's a, I read some history one time that said that uh, air conditioning was one of the great downfalls of our country, because prior to air conditioning, the U.S. Congress was unable to meet all summer long. Um, That's and, true. And That's true. that once they got air conditioning, suddenly Congress was meeting and getting into all kinds of mischief pretty much year round. Yeah, except they still take an August recess based on the same excuse. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. Uh, what else is going no, on here? No, nobody wants to be in D.C. in August. Nobody wants to be in D.C. in August. Yeah. yeah. And, and July's not all that special either. Yeah, July. <laughs> it's, it's not like there's this barrier that says, oh, that was July. That was much nicer. Yeah. The, uh, the climate doesn't know anything about calendars. Uh, okay. I, if you say so. I would think the climate is all about the count. Cal- I, I know what you're saying, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Let's see now. Follow-ups here. We've got, uh, so uh, a couple episodes ago, we were talking a bit about um, parachute requirements during training, um, spin training and and whatnot. Um, And and we came up with our our own um, um, interpretation of the rule. Coincidentally, the FAA has weighed in. Um, obviously, they're a listener, and so they. I'm yeah, looking. It's so nice of them to show I know, up. Huh? Looking at um, a section of the AOPA website, uh, specifically part that's called Pilot Protection Services, um, and uh, it's a story. This is actually a story that goes back a little ways, so it may have been. Well, this is about when we were talking about it. Um, headline is parachutes not required for spin. So, just to refresh people's memory, our question was. Do you have to wear a parachute during spin training in primary training, given that spin training is not required for primary training, and given that spin training is aerobatic, which is a mouthful? Does that make sense? Does that summarize what we were talking about? Um, and I can't even remember what it was we decided the interpretation should be, but the FAA, in the form no, no, no less than the FAA's Office of the Chief Counsel, uh, recently, or at least back around May 1st, addressed this question um, in, a, in an interpretation apparently for Fitzpatrick Spartan College. Um, and I'm reading now from the AOPA story. Um, they, are, they report, the interpretation acknowledged that there is some ambiguity in the language, stating, quote, some parties have interpreted this subsection to mean that unless the certificate or rating being sought requires spin trading, a parachute is required, end quote. But relying on the express language of the original language, the upshot here is, if I'm reading this correctly, is that the FAA Office of the Chief Counsel has said that because spin training is required in higher certificates and ratings, uh, it is effectively required. It, it is a part of the of the of the curriculum for the lower parts. Does that make sense? You see what I'm yes. saying? Yeah. All right. And so, although specifically primary training doesn't require spin training, since you are sort sort of kind of to some extent training for your CFI when you're doing your primary training. That's the way I think of it anyways. Um, Because you're training not just for the literal thing you're training for today, you're training for further on. 
Um, the parachute's not required. Training for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, that, at least that's the way I read. That's my interpretation of this interpretation, um, is that uh, if you're with a CFI doing training, spin training, um, you, a parachute is not required because spin training is required for other parts of the, of the uh, curriculum. Yes? No? Does that make sense? Well, if that's, if that's what the FIA says, then that's what the FIA says. Yeah. 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 Today and for one particular district sometimes is the way it works. Well, yeah. sometimes that's the way it works. I think um, in this instance, they, they, I think you could apply this um, um, throughout the U.S., um, this I, I would actually, imagine this is this is office. This is FAA headquarters, office of chief counsel. So right, it's not right. a this regional. Is, right, it's this is not, not a FISDO interpretation. interpretation. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so as of now, that's the uh, that's the, the you know you don't need a parachute for spin training with the CFI. Um, that's all, I guess. Is there anything else to add to that, or? Yeah, and that, that that I think that's a a decent way to split the baby, uh, because I know student pilots when they're uh, training uh, in tailwheel airplanes that, uh, particularly in tailwheel airplanes. I don't know why particularly in tailwheel airplanes, but the, the spin training question always comes up, and. Uh, I've heard instructors explain that they could only do that if the two of the uh, if the two occupants, the flight instructor and the student pilot or the pilot taking instruction, had parachutes. Mm-hmm. And you know the, uh, the 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 student pilot or the pilot taking instruction really wanted some exposure to spins because the airplane that they were training in is capable of spinning and and approved for spins. So they want to know how to get out of it, basically. And when they're told, well, you you, you got to have a parachute to do that, that kind of puts them in a bind because not many of us have, you know, seat pack parachutes hanging around that we don't need any other time. And, right. Uh, so this will open the door somewhat for those guys to get the uh, extra non-required training that uh, that they des- desire for their primary and it'll set them up well if they're going to move on to commercial ATP, CFI, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Is spin training required for commercial? I'm pretty sure it is for CFI. But CFI it, only, but not commercial. Not commercial. Yeah, <laughs> not commercial. So CFI is the first level at which spin training is a requirement. Yeah. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Anything else there? We got not a huge... That, that's, yeah. that's the totality of my spin on yeah, okay. this. Yeah. Right. It, uh, yeah. And uh, f- we're talking about FAR 91.307. Okay. Uh, Anybody and, wants to look uh, it up. Yeah. If anyone wants to look it up. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, Strictly and speaking, Delta 2. You, you want to see subsection D yeah. okay. of said reg. <laughs> yes. There you go. Okay. Uh, another little follow-up. We were talking in, in recent episodes about uh, some of these electric-powered... Uh, um, human carrying multicopters that are starting to to you know be developed, and uh, we were talking about the Surefly uh, uh, aircraft, uh, which I had seen a prototype of at Oshkosh last summer, and, and and I kind of admired and liked, and we talked about whether Jack would fly this. I think in a recent episode, um, and it was in the news just recently that, uh, and the reason we talked about it a couple episodes ago was that it had done hover tests. 
Um, but now it is apparently, and this is kind of weird terminology, but I'll just take it as a step forward. FAA accepts Surefly type certification application. So it is not not nearly certified yet, but they've accepted their application, which I, I don't know. Is that the, the, the article suggests that's, that that's a good step forward? That this well, is a, that, that's a step every airplane that uh, has to go through. Okay, but do does the FAA accept these applications routinely, or is there some screening involved at that stage of the game? Oh, there's too? definitely some screening okay. going on. Yeah. Okay, so so this is a uh, it is a milestone that they've that their application's been accepted and they're moving forward. Um, this is uh, seems to me to be one of the more promising um, of uh, of the uh, human carrying multicopter programs. Um, it it is not the sexiest, you know, elegant looking aircraft, um, but. Um, I like the design, and I like some of the some of the uh, um, approaches they're using um, to develop it. So uh, I'm really looking forward to see this thing move forward. What else here? Let's see now. Uh, what was next here? Uh, oh, cell phones. Okay. So, <laughs> so like I said, this friend and I have taken to having. I, there's, there's, if you if you subscribe to the free version of FlightAware. There, there is. I'm kind of happy to say a limitation of how many tail numbers you can stock. I mean, follow. All right, um, and so there's only like three or four that I I follow. Um, and and I I follow our friend Jeb. I follow. Um, I used to follow the Smoketown um, uh, 152. I and and since it's I don't know whether it end number changed when it when it got sold. So I don't know if I follow it anymore. Um, and then I follow this other friend who flies around the West Coast a lot. And so whenever I see him flying, you know, I'll go into FlightAware and see where he is and see what's going on. And and often as not, he will have texted me first, you know, because he he calls me his flight following. Sometimes he'll text me saying, uh, uh, flight following, because he wants me to look something up on the Internet because I have a better connection than he has flying along at 5,000 or 8,000 feet. But here's my question. Okay, so he has... Uh, a cell data phone connection when motoring along at whatever, you know, 8,000 feet, um, 85 or whatever it is at, right? Um, and, and once upon a time, it was considered against the FCC regulations to have your phone connected while you were in flight. And I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to find a definitive answer for whether or not this is okay. Um, you guys have any thoughts on this? Do you know anything about this? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. What is it? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's one of those yes and no things. Okay. okay. In October of 13, the FAA said that you can use devices like iPhones and tablets and, and Androids on flights within the U.S., provided that they're in airplane mode while taxiing and in the sky. Right. And that's the latest update I saw, and that was dated early 17. So, right. Uh, so you can play your games, and you can do whatever they will do in airplane mode, but you're not supposed to be making phone calls. Which is out of airplane mode, right? Because they don't want the FC. This is an FCC thing, not an FAA thing, right? And it's the FCC thing that I'm curious about. I I sort of understand the FAA rule, all right, 
Um, it's the FCC rule that I'm trying to understand now. All right, because so I I will confess now. Um, I recently re-upped my Forflight um, subscription, and so I have Forflight on my cool new 10 uh, uh, inch iPad now. All right, and just for fun, one day uh, while on an airliner, all right, I thought I wonder how this would work. Well, how this would work, right? You know, and so I turned on Forflight sitting in this airliner seat while we're motoring along, all right? And um, and at first it couldn't make a cell data connection, all right? But it did actually at some point make a cell data connection from like 30,000, 35,000 feet, amazingly, all right? Um, and, and so you can make this connection even that high. And obviously the Forflight people, if you're using for, and I'm a very, very, um, a novice Forflight user at this stage of the game. Jeb, I know you use it a lot more, so I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think in a second, but, uh, you know, Forflight in a private aircraft, you know, below 10, 12,000 feet, it would seem to me you're going to be able to make a cell phone, a cell data connection. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a matter of ability. It, I know. It, yeah. It's, yeah. It, is it legal? And I, it used to, I'm convinced that it used to be illegal, and now I'm not so sure. And the explanation I've seen is that it's the difference between back in the old days, it was the analog cell phone network, and now it's the digital cell phone network. Well, right? All right. So, Jeb, you're a four-flight user. What's your thought on this? I'm not um, asking you to confess to it breaking any laws here. No. Um, I don't know... I've never seen. Uh, yeah, I take that back. Never is a, a strong word. I, I, I will occasionally get um, some bars on my on my iPad's data side, um, and unless you're, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to get into uh, cell iPads versus non-cell iPads, but. Uh, um, I have occasionally seen a bar or two of data connection on my iPad. I don't pay any attention to it um, because it's it's um, uh, using the Wi-Fi uh, from the airplane to connect uh, with the ADSB connection and yada yada yada. Right. Um, there, there's there's two or three things going on here. One yeah. is, of course, the FCC regulation or or rules or, or policy or whatever the hell it is. Um, about cell phone use um, in an airplane. Um, the other thing going on here is um, interference with the aircraft systems. And the third thing going on here is is airline rules or FAA and or FAA rules. Right. Um, so let's 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 take those in reverse order. Um, you can use your cell phone or or, or tablet uh, on an airplane in airplane mode. On, on, on an airliner, excuse me, in 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 airplane mode. Yes, um, you can, um, or you cannot. You know, whatever. The um, if you're in a private air aircraft in a, a non-airline environment, I'm not aware of any rule saying you cannot use your cell phone. Okay, um, the problem, and I'm again. Uh, I haven't pawed through all of the FCC rules, but uh, that's my understanding. Um, the problem with being in an aircraft aloft and using a cell phone or using cell data or using any of the cellular, ne cellular network mm -hmm. is um, 
your signal from your signal from your cell phone seeking out a cell signal is going to be bouncing off a bunch of towers. Right. And it's going to confuse the uh, um, the cell phone itself. I've seen, you know, on, on occasions where I've taken my cell phone in my airplane and gone from A to B, and I forgot to turn off the cell phone. Right. It, I've seen it dead yeah. from a drained battery after a couple of hours because it keeps searching. It keeps using a lot of battery to search for a good cell uh, tower connection. Sure, but and no, it, minute, it keeps just... it keeps bouncing back and forth, using up the battery. And in the end, of, at the end of the day, I don't know if it's if it's you know. Every now and then, I'll get a text or or I'll get you know a beep from the phone saying you know oh you've got mail or, or something like that. And I wait a second, that thing should be off, and I'll turn it off, and, and all as well. Right. Um. Now, um. So if you're in a private airplane, knock yourself out is the punchline. Now, the um, um, problem, as I see it, Mm -hmm. is cell phones will interfere with aircraft systems. Yeah, period. we've talked about this, and I know you. Th- I know yeah. that you feel that way. Go ahead, ex- yeah. elaborate. I, I've seen it happen. Yeah, I've seen it happen. Yep. I, I um, um, vividly remember uh, the circumstances. Um, so, you know, my thing is try it in your own personal airplane. If you don't see any interference, or you don't hear any interference, or either, you know the instruments <clears throat> seem to to the instruments and avionics seem to be working normally, then knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, th- you know, there there used to be um, um, <sighs> back in the day when we had analog cell phones, right? Okay. There used to be a prohibition about that, right? But now that with the with the digital cell phones we have the smartphones, um, I'm not aware of any any FCC prohibition, but right. there could well be one. Well, I, well I'm gonna, uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, David. Go ahead. In 2013, the chairman of the FCC proposed uh, a, a change in regulation, right, uh, to end the ban of use on cell phone on planes. So, uh, because there was no longer, because of the technology change, there's no longer the major concern that the cellular signal would interfere with the uh, uh, avionics on the aircraft. Uh, but that rule change never made it into into law because the pushback, in particular from airline employees, flight attendants, uh, cockpit crew, uh, some of the carriers, uh, they they were opposed to it because of the potential for the cabin to become a cacophony of all these conversations going on and no peace and quiet. And then we had a change in administration in January of 17, you might remember. Mm-hmm. And we got a new chairman of the FCC mm-hmm. who took that proposal off the table permanently. Oh, so really? it's still prohibited on airlines. The FCC rule on using it on private aircraft is still in effect. Not because it will interfere with the avionics. Is that's you know the big upshot from the move to digital from analog. 
And it's the pinging multiple towers at once. And particularly if you're flying below 10,000 feet, you could, you could be uh, hitting two or three cell towers within a few miles of one another. Sure. And their system doesn't know Whiskey right. Tango Foxtrot. So, so David, this what is you, still not a good. This is still not recommended. Well, I, 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 yeah, I rec- but I, and I'm not asking about recommended. I'm asking what the law says. And David, law, what you just stated is no. You, it was pretty definitive. Um, not necessarily the second, David, but can you find me a link to to something about that so that um, I can put it in the show notes? Because um, <clears throat> that's interesting. All right, let me see how to do. It. Oh, and one other thing. Yeah. It, well, there was one other thing, and I just went blank. Right. Uh, See, because in playing with, while you're looking, in playing with ForeFlight in flight, um, I one uh, interesting thing I've discovered is that um, while you don't necessarily need to be connected to the cell phone data network for ForeFlight to work, you do need to get the iPad out of airplane mode because that's how you turn on the GPS radios. And there's the rub. All right. And um, and so oh, what yeah. I find, yeah. And so you, yeah, now, it's now there is there is an exception for this, yeah. But it still leaves your phone in airplane mode, it, what, and that's that? on aircraft, and that can be uh, you know a, a business jet, a turboprop, a, a, and more and more we're getting light systems for uh, GA airplanes that you can put in for ten thousand and let you do text and voice. A little box that weighs less than a pound and about the size of a paperback book. Five cents a text. If your aircraft, the aircraft you're flying on, has equipment that, for you to connect via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth to their system, mm-hmm. you can make a phone call through their internet connection, mm-hmm. or send messages from your phone through this text and voice connection. Right. But that's still in airplane mode. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, because it's the box that's out of airplane mode. It's right. The, it's the box that's doing. The and how does the box with, connect? Does the box connect through the cell phone network, or does the box connect through some sort of satellite thing, or can't be satellite? Well, it think. depends on whose system you're talking yeah, about. Right. Okay. We we have we have companies offering both. Yeah. Through ground network and through satellites, and some that offer both. Yeah. Anyways, David, I would love to see that article. I I, I believe you. I would just like to read I, the details. I just, I, I Did just you just post a message? Oh, I see it there. Okay, I'll take a look at that. Um, yeah, because I and and so uh, the, I have this one friend who I've been talking about who texts me back and we, we text back and forth when he's flying. Actually, another friend, um, a mutual friend of the three of us, um, who will remain nameless, who actually has his cell phone wired into his headphone intercom in his aircraft, and and he will from time to time make a phone call to you from cockpit um and you know yeah this is perfect arrival. a lot of audio panels these days have right. a, a, a connection that allows you to make phone calls right but this uh, is through his cell phone this is not through a third-party box right it's through the cell phone but that's when you're on the ground no but he does it in flight yeah, so, yeah well, that's anyways. problematic yeah. okay yeah, all right it, it is and, yeah. and I, I said earlier i'm not aware of a uh, fcc rule i now am uh, and it's 47 CFR 22.925. Okay. Is this the thing that David just sent us? I don't know. Okay. He sent, Go ahead. I think he sent us a link to a, a Washington Post article. Yeah, he did. Uh, um, I think, I, you know. And what does that, this, that this, reg this is say? This what drives Jim? me crazy about some of this discussion. <clears throat> um, the headline on this um, is the FCC is reversing its proposal to allow cell phone use on planes. 
What kind of airplane? Yeah, I know. That, that's where it gets confusing. It's, it, and it's just, it's just absurd that we have to have this argument or this discussion. But um, um, the, the FCC basically does make it illegal, does ban, prohibit, I should say, which is the correct phrase from the reg, prohibit operation of cellular telephones uh, while airborne. Um, come, you know, come find me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and Jeb, uh, if you have a link to that, that would be useful for the show notes know, as well. Me, so me, uh, anyways, all right, we, we should move on here. We've killed this one. Um, you, you can phone in your answers later. Yeah, That's and, right. and That's listeners right. who know more about this than we do, um, um, although we seem to have pinned it down, but um, if anybody else has a definitive um, you know, perspective on this, send it to a podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com or, yeah. or put it in the forums or something like that. Hi, this is Jack. We here at Uncontrolled Airspace are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. There are two simple ways that you can contribute to this podcast. You can make a one-time, non-repeating donation by using PayPal. It doesn't need to be very much. As little as $10 or $15 is a big, big help. Or you can make an automatically repeating per-episode pledge with Patreon. With the online service Patreon.com, you can pledge as little as $1 per episode, put limits on your per-month contribution, and change or cancel your pledge at any time. For more information about how you can support this podcast in one of these ways, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. That will take you to a page with details on both these support methods. Thanks. Um, anyways, okay, here we go. It's, we're, we're, yeah, okay. We're not exactly reaching the end of our allotted time, but it's zooming by and we haven't even put a crack in, a dent in this list, a crack in yeah, this maybe, list. Maybe there's someone we could call to get some extra time. Uh, yeah, right. I know. Okay. Uh, let's see now. Uh, what do I want to talk about here? I want to talk about, um, um, Avgas replacement. Um, ah. seems like it's been in the news over the last week or so. Ah. I've seen two, two threads in the news. One is that the, uh, FAA, uh, endorsed investigation, which apparently now has been narrowed down to swift fuel. And mm, I want to say shell. Is that right? Is it shell? Shell is on. It's Shell's shells entry. Um, That program, um, which was moving along nicely, seems to have been put on hold temporarily for some reason. And I want to know more about that. And then I also saw uh, a story, another thread, about how uh, GAMI, um, the General Aviation, what is it, Manufacturers? Modifications. Modifications uh, organization there, um, have separately been working on a third uh, possibility, which they call G100. Um, which apparently is also making progress. So, update me here. Um, what, do you, what do you guys know about the state of the uh, the, the program for finding an avgas replacement, hundred low lead replacement? Don't everybody jump in at once? Yeah, I know. Huh? I know. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I did some early work um, um, on this early being eight, ten years ago, um, uh-huh. when, when uh, PAFI, the um, whatever is it called, Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative, uh, PAFI, uh, first came into being. Uh, that's a, that was a joint effort between industry um, and the FAA to uh, come, start coming up with a, a lead-free aviation gasoline. Um, 
and that you know the swift fuel um, uh, phenomenon, if you will, and and Shell and and uh, a, a bunch of other players got involved. Gammy also got involved, and um, I remember back from that period of time, and and I have a a, a lot of respect uh, for George Brawley. Uh, I remember George saying that you know we've been able to to futz around with the chemistry on some of this and and you know we have something that uh, um, we've been flying and uh, they've they've been flying it um, in a Cirrus uh, SR22 they've been using it in their test stand um, Gammy has a, a fairly um, um, high tech. Uh, aircraft engine test stand that they use um, and a variety of other uh, testing things that they have done and there's a video out there somewhere of um, them of someone flying along in an SR-22 left tank has 100 low lead in it or one tank has 100 low lead in it the other tank has the GAMI um, uh, G100 I believe it's called um, in the in a, and they switch tanks while they're videotaping the engine monitor uh, in the airplane, mm-hmm. and nothing happens. Yeah. Okay. Nothing um, bad happens. Nothing. Nothing flying. happens. You, yeah. you might get you know a, a tweak on the EGTs or something, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of degrees, but that's it. Nothing right. happens. The, right. air, the airplane continues to run. All the engine instruments are fine. Yada yada yada. Um, Gammy did not participate in PAFI right. um, for their own reasons. Um, and perhaps they made a correct decision now that it appears the PAFI process has failed. Um, the, um, there's an article on the same page that you link to. It's the, basically a sidebar by uh, Paul Bertarelli that kind of recaps where we are um, uh, with Paffy, and basically, um, back when I was pe- peeling the onion on all of this six or eight, ten years ago, um, Paffy had targeted 2018 mm-hmm. as the end of the process that it was going to conduct. There was um, two or three phases, uh, one of which involved the Atlantic City FAA Tech Center. Uh, and research that they would conduct. Uh, another phase involved uh, actual flight testing, and I think I want to say Embry Riddle um, was involved in that, but I, I might be wrong. I don't want to get a bunch of calls from Embry Riddle um, uh, that they weren't involved in this. But s- some organization like Embry Riddle or or uh, um, some other large flight school was involved in, in early stages anyway in doing some flight testing. The punchline uh, of what's going on right now is that PAFI, uh, the PAFI process basically has, has uh, kind of fallen down. Um, they're asking, they're saying anyway, that they'll need another year at least to do this, um, that um, there's an incompatibility apparently um, between 100 low lead and these new fuels, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. And, and um, that some of them are great paint strippers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shell fuel, apparently, according to Avweb, is a very good paint stripper, which is not a very good thing uh, because we always spill 
uh, a little bit of fuel when we're topping our tanks. Right. Um, the uh, compatibility thing is a big deal. Yeah. In that you start out, you, you, you start out with a tank of 100 low lead, you fly somewhere, they've got, um, um, let's call it, uh, uh, let's call it Uncle Jeb's backyard avgas, the term we've used before, mm-hmm. um, in their pump, and you put it in your airplane, and um, it's not compatible. The the mixing of 100 low lead with Uncle Jeb's backyard avgas um, causes some kind of a chemical reaction that is not beneficial. Let's right. let's put it that way. Sure, uh, that's the compatibility testing problem. Right, and. Um, uh, apparently, according to recent coverage, not only here at Avweb but elsewhere, um, that incompati- that compatibility testing has not been successful. Ah, okay. Um, and so, well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And, yeah. And I, I, you know, other people are kind of scratching their head, and I'm I'm kind of one of them, saying, "Why has it taken so long for us to get to that point? Why didn't we figure that part out early on?" Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. So I don't know, Punchline, what exactly is going on with the PAFI um, process, uh, but it apparently has fallen down, and it's not clear what it will take to put it back upright. Hmm. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, uh, to the extent there is a meantime, um, there is, uh, in addition to um, GAMI's G100, G100UL or whatever it's called, uh, according to Bertarelli, um, there is another uh, uh, candidate out there, candidate for a 100 low lead replacement um, from BP or something. Uh, but uh, uh, no one really knows a whole lot about that, and the companies aren't really talking. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a problem uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. One, lead is, is uh, poisonous. And... Uh, uh, two, Avgas is the only, basically the only widespread um, leaded fuel still in use, right? Or widespread use. I think three is uh, we've seen um, a lot of of um, data uh, over the years as lead was removed from automotive uh, uh, from motor fuels, um, where. Um, there were um, changes, uh, let's say, improvements in crime rates. Um, yeah. And in other um, um, testing, other statistics regarding uh, health and yeah. uh, um, IQ levels, perhaps. Sure. Uh, no, I, I know what a, you're talking about, and I've that, heard these too. That yeah. the, the ban on lead in motor fuels has... If certainly it's been coincidental, there, it's hard to find. You know, uh, I forget the phrase. Uh, um, correlation is not causation. Right. Um, that sort of thing. The punchline is we should be getting the lead out of this fuel, and we've got to come up with a way uh, to to cross to tick off all these boxes. Right. Um, whether Gammy's uh, um, concoction uh, will meet that test, whether something else will meet that test. It's not at all clear, and it's not at all clear where we go from here. Right, right. I, yeah, I know what you're talking about, this, this lead thing. Um, I, and I'm, I'm in the school, 
and this is very unscientific, this is just a, a layman's but view, but, but I'm of the school that, the, the, yes, that did make a difference. Um, there's a lot of studies that, have, like you say, correlation, not cause, car, whatever it was you said. Um, but, correlation um, is not causation. Is not causation, right. all right? But there have been numerous studies that have observed this, this coincidence, if you want to call it that, um, between we've, we, get, we got really aggressive about getting lead out of the environment, not, not just auto fuel, um, uh, household paint, um, and, and a number of other ways. And, and at the same time, or, or, or closely following after that, we saw dramatic reductions in crime rates, um, violent crimes and, and all sorts of other crimes. Um, and, and some people believe, as Jeff, Jeb alluded, um, that there was a connection, that the lead in the environment was literally making us insane. Um, and uh, I, I, it makes sense to me. On the other hand, and I'm going to let Dave talk in just a second. On the other hand, though... Um, <laughs> We don't use very much avgas, all right? We're not talking about the kind of lead quantities that we had back in the day when every car was, was on leaded fuel. And so I, I don't – it's not the same kind of urgency, I guess, is my point. I David, what's your – yeah, Jeff? Real, real quickly, I don't disagree with what you just said there at the end, except that um, there is a lawsuit pending before the EPA yeah. requiring them um, uh, or urging them or forcing yeah. them – uh, to regulate lead in 100 low lead, and we don't want the EPA to do this for us. Yeah, no, that's I, I, I like the idea of a replacement. I, I'm not opposed <clears throat> yes, to us finding yes, a replacement. Yes. The, I, the I second, just, the second thing is one of the um, um, facts, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, that forms the basis for that lawsuit. I think it's Fringes of the Earth um, filed it is that they have recorded increased levels of lead in the environment near and around general aviation airports. Have they really? I hadn't yes, seen that. Yes, they have. Okay. And that's, yeah, that's, that's small, it's all, but it's yeah, there. It's there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll and, shut up now. And with this organization, all, all, all they need is to be able to cite a measurable presence yeah. for them to yeah. go, ah, emergency, emergency. Yeah. Anyways, all right, um, David. What's your take on the uh, the state of alternate uh, 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 hundred low lead replacement? Well, the uh, all, all the all the carrying on when this process started. What we've been working on this now for what more than ten years. Yeah. Uh, the idea of finding a, a replacement. This is a, a an issue of Gordian knot complications. And it's not because it's difficult to formulate a fuel necessarily, particularly an unleaded fuel. I mean, we're burning billions of gallons of it here in the States with the, with our automobiles. The, the, the complication comes from the diversity and, and, and system differences of the fleet that... And it, it it all comes down to this. Somebody along the way said, what we need is one drop-in replacement that will work for everything. Uh, and really never considered the uh, uh, alternative of different fuels for different engines like we used to have. You know, we used to have 80 octane. We used to have uh, 92 octane. We used to have 100 octane leaded fuels. Uh for different aircraft with different compression ratios in their engines and different fuel system issues. Uh, 
trying to find it. And, and the 100 low lead has been the the go-to one fuel fits all, largely because it was able to stand up to the system's test to demonstrate that it didn't damage fuel system components. And that's been one of the big issues in finding a replacement. Some airplanes have metal aluminum tanks. Some airplanes have rubber bladders in their tanks. Uh, some of them have plastic tanks. Uh, you got different components in the fuel system itself, the delivery system, the you know, diaphragms and fuel pumps, the hoses that react differently to different chemicals in some of the different fuels that mm-hmm. have been tested. That's added complication to it. Uh I've long believed that if we'd had taken the old approach, which I don't think any of the petroleum people wanted to do, and had two fuels for two different types of of engine compression levels or three, uh, that we would probably be farther down the road now than we are. But as the folks here from, uh, as as George was talking about from GAMI, you know, they still have detonation testing and in-flight trials using a Lycoming IO540K-equipped Piper Lance and a 150-hour test in a Cirrus, which is a Continental engine. If it's an SR-20, it's a little six-cylinder uh, IO360. If it's a bigger one, it's, uh, I believe, 540 or 550. Anyway, the more different kind of fuel systems and delivery systems and tanks we've got, the more complicated the issue is. And I'll be really surprised if we're not still talking about how close we are to a replacement when this decade clocks out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Go ahead, Jeff. A, finish this up, please. Yeah, there's a um, January <clears throat> 2017 update uh, on the GAMI uh, website um, and the video I spoke of um, uh, where they, they switch from 100 low lead to, to mm-hmm. G100 and back or whatever, that's uh, their videos are on the website mm-hmm. um, the um, the problem and, and, and Dave's correct in that you know there's when people talk about this this uh, unleaded aviation fuel problem, uh, one catchphrase that's bandied about is the seventy thirty problem. Seventy um, percent of the fleet doesn't need um, a high octane uh, fuel because mm-hmm. the compression ratios, the power output, whatever of the engine is not uh, as great as the the bigger bore. Uh, uh, larger, uh, more right. powerful engines. Mm-hmm. Um, that comprises that, that comprise about thirty percent of the fleet. The trick is that that thirty percent of the fleet uses about seventy percent of the fuel. Right, and it's that's the seventy thirty problem. Yeah. Um, the uh, FBOs, um, the oil companies, um, and perhaps even the FAA. Um, has argued strongly against two fuels going forward um, for liability reasons, for uh, infrastructure reasons, um, for any uh, for for safety reasons. 
where you, you get the wrong fuel in the, in the wrong tank and right. things go kablooey. Um, the FBOs don't want to have to put in another fuel farm or buy another truck. Um, and the oil companies um, don't want to have to have a second product that they have to maintain and, and sort and, and deliver separately from a, the other product. So it, it's, you know, there's some economics involved here. There's some regulation involved here. There's some physics involved here. And it just all hasn't come together yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, 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 we need to move on here. But I just, so Gammy's, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, solution or experiment or, or, or you know, exercise. What is their, and I, and I use this word with affection, fantasy. What is their fantasy about how this might play out? Do they think they're just going to get a whole slew of STCs? I mean, once it's, it's not there yet, but are they well, the, a whole the, bunch of STCs, or do they think it will be embraced industry-wide? By the, some, the AvWeb article that you link to, uh, if you read down a little bit, um, kind of highlights or, or, or um, um, talks to that, speaks mm-hmm. to that. Gammy basically says that they would, they would, the, the, their fuel would require an STC, mm-hmm. which they will make available free for the download. Right, and how would an S- would an STC like that be by aircraft or by engine type? You're going to say yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, the the uh, EAA got a uh, an STC. I think it was 1982 to use uh, unleaded regular car gas in a Cessna right. 150. Right, I remember that. It, yeah. There had to be an STC for the airframe. There had to be an STC for the engine. Yeah, because of that issue, the fuel delivery system and the engine. There's the two different components. Uh, yeah, and they'd had they'd tested for a long time before they got that. Right. Then another outfit got the STC, and then the, an approved model list expanded the applicability of the STCs uh, to the point where, as Jeb was saying. We got a lot of the fleet out there that can run on car gas, but some of the fuel components in our airplanes don't right. react well to alcohol. To the alcohol, yeah. So, so well, finding even finding unleaded uh, yeah. uh, car gas without alcohol without alcohol in it is uh, gotten to be a trick. Oh, yeah. A lot of our gas stations here in the Wichita area sell. A no alcohol uh, unleaded, and yeah, it's true. usually about twenty or thirty percent more cents per gallon more expensive. Oh, I, yeah, out here it's more than that more expensive. But yeah, Jeb, you were going to say something, and then we're going to move on. Um, uh, I was I was trying to research here um, what Rotax requires for its um, uh, fuel. Um, unleaded automotive gasoline. I think there's an up to 10% uh, ethanol mm-hmm. um, um, capability, right. if you will. Uh, they're allowable uh, in, the, in, in Rotax engines. I, I'm sorry I can't research that while I'm talking at the same That's time. That's fine. That's fine. Um, we'll, 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 yeah. Let's come yeah. back to this later on. But yeah. 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 Okay. Um, 
We're definitely reaching the end of our lot of time here. I'm going to flip over all the cards here and uh, jump ahead to shout-outs because we got way too many shout-outs, too. While you guys uh, uh, familiarize yourself with the shout-out list, I am going to do one bit of podcast business here, um, and that is to ask listeners for a little bit of help here. So um, l- uh, regular listeners know that about five or six episodes ago, we changed over to a new way of producing the podcast using some different recording tools. Um, and uh, while the recording tools are a huge improvement over what what we had been using Skype. Um, it's uh, uh, it has changed the workflow of post production, and in the very first episode, that resulted in um, the volume. There were there were if if you will volume excursions. All right, um, in in the episode, um, that our our voices were not all the same um, volume, and that's I know I know why that was, and I knew how to fix it. Um, and I did, and I think it's been okay in episodes since then. The problem is that the fix is fairly labor-intensive. And so with this episode, I am going to, for me it's in the future, for you folks listening it's in the past, um, I will have done it a different way, and I would like reports from people on whether or not this was successful. Um, are are different voices reasonably the same volume that you don't have to be constantly uh, riding the gain on your podcast player? Um and uh, that would be useful information. It would also be useful to know if, in fact, it was better for the last um, couple of episodes. Um, so um, a little bit of an experiment here. I apologize if it goes badly. I don't think it'll go too badly, but it might not be ideal, and that's what I'd like to know about. Um, so anyways, uh, send, uh, send uh, a post in the forums or text to Class G Airspace on Twitter, um, or Twitter to Class G Airspace, or, t- or uh, send it to uh, podcast and uncontrolledairspace.com. Shoutouts. What do you guys? You got anything? Oh, shoutouts. I gave you that nice period of time to be thinking <clears throat> about this, and instead you were listening to my my beautiful voice. All right, then I'll give you a little bit more time. I'll go first. Shoutout. Um, this we need to. This needs to be a regular. I think this is, could be a good thing. We should make this a regular um, um, segment of the podcast. And for the time being, I'm going to call it friendly FBO. All right. Um, so, um, reported from, uh, my friend Drew, who flies, uh, out in, uh, the West Coast area, uh, he sent me, a, a message one point about an FBO that he liked that he just happened to stop into. It's not an FBO he uses on a regular basis. Um, it's R-A-T-O-N, and I'm saying Rattan or Rattan. Uh, gave me a free burger, chips, and a drink for filling up. He bought it, he filled his tanks, um, at, at, at R-T-N, K-R-T-N, uh, Romeo Tango No. November, um, and they gave him lunch. All right, I mean, doesn't get better than that. That's pretty hey, cool, no, no. you know. So if and no, so Rattan or Raton um, is in New Mexico, um, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, within the Albuquerque Center area, Albuquerque Flight Service uh, area. And if you're flying in that area and uh, need some gas and would like a burger, um, should stop it at Raton or Raton, New Mexico. K R T N. Um, and so that's our FBO of the episode, of FBO of the week, friendly FBO. We'll have to come up with a good name for this. But <laughs> And send us your uh, experiences. If you listeners, if you uh, have a good experience with an FBO someplace, uh, and uh, uh, we want to get the word out so that they, uh, they get the you know, business that they deserve, send it to us at one of those things that I mentioned a minute ago. What else? What do you guys got? Shoutouts? Well, I noticed we had on the list a question about why we hadn't mentioned aeroplanes brewing here in Wichita before. I know, huh? And the truth is, we have. 
when, I wondered uh, if maybe we had. Yes, we. we I had some uh, uh, visitors from uh, out of town uh, from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, who fl- flew into town and and, and uh, got a hold of me, and we met at aeroplanes to have a, a, a beer and, and 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 chat a little bit. And aeroplanes is a uh, a, a, a craft brewery. On the west side of downtown Wichita, in the neighborhood mm-hmm. called Delano, mm-hmm. uh, the founder and one of the partners are uh, uh, friends of mine. The founder is a retired Marine uh, who, uh, with his partner, spent I don't know three years pulling together the money and the infrastructure necessary to start up uh, what is a, a quite substantial brewing operation. Mm-hmm. I mean, their their beers are showing up in other restaurants and in uh, at liquor stores and uh, good variety, uh, good food. They got a couple of dart boards. They got a shuffleboard. Uh, it's busy place regularly. Open, yeah, open seven days a week. So yeah, I, uh, I th- a shout out to my friends at Aeroplanes. Aeroplanes. Um, I I think David that you actually took me there um, when I was out visiting a couple years ago. Uh, I remember you took me to a, 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 a craft brewery um, that was sort of, I want to say it was to the sort of southwest of your home, um, down in one of those neighborhoods. That, and, that, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to say it was, um, the other thing, just for people who, uh, it's not apparent when you hear the hear us say the name, Aeroplanes. Um, it's actually Aero, like A-E-R-O, and right. then Planes, like the Great Planes. Um, and, the, and, and the decor and the motif is, is airplane-centric. Yeah, they're they're uh, definitely playing off on the little pun there, but uh, yeah, they they. Oh, right now the uh, south wall of the place has this gigantic uh, artistic rendering of uh, I believe it's a twin beach. Uh, I mean, it's it's like eight by ten feet, and made up of individual prints that go together to make mm-hmm. one big picture. But yeah. Uh, uh, the bar is aircraft grade aluminum. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of aviation touches in it. Uh, years ago, they asked me to try to come up with a uh, a used hang glider or ultralight that they could suspend from the ceiling. Uh, but everything that was suitable for what they had in mind was being marketed as "quote unquote" an antique ultralight and an asking price that was beyond what their budget could handle for mm-hmm. a startup so yeah but it's yeah. definitely aviation themed they've even got a red beacon on the sign outside that flashes when they're open yeah yeah so thanks to uh listener and patreon supporter bill mellett um for uh for uh calling our attention to this and and basically it's basically a shout out from from listener bill mellett so when you get yeah. right down to it yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. cool that's cool uh jeb what do you got yeah just real quick um Two two real quick mentions. Yeah, one to a company called Tri-State RV Rentals, um, and the other to um, Larry Overstreet. Um, we're all gearing up for Oshkosh uh, uh, next month. Uh, starting to get you know down to uh, uh, three or four or four or five weeks uh, out. Um, Tri-State RV Rentals is uh, the company we're using to, to get us a camper and shoulder. And Larry Overstreet is kind of the camp manager. And uh, um, 
we're we're working with both of these organizations, both of these people, to to get us all set up for the show mm-hmm. and uh, just give them a shout out. Uh, thanks for all the support. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no small undertaking on their no part. No small undertakings at all here. Yeah. Um, let's see now. That was your two, right, Larry and yeah, and Larry the RV people. And, and yeah, right. Tri-state okay. RV Reynolds. Yeah, I know, right? We're not. Yeah, they, they, and, and we're not getting any there. This, yeah, this is not paying, a paid endorsement yeah, or anything we're, like we're that. We're paying retail. For we're this, paying retail, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> um, but uh, they've been very friendly and helpful and, and accommodating um, of yeah. our of our somewhat special needs. Um, and, well, we're we're all special needs. People, that's so, sort of what I was saying. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So, anyways. Uh, I want this other one to not go without mention. This is this is sort of more than a shout out, but less than a full story, um, and that's this JFK thing, which I think is really pretty fascinating. Um, so there was a headline uh, a couple weeks back um, that said JFK soloed in just ten days. All right, and when I first saw it, I thought, oh man, this is all about JFK, and he crashed and died and killed himself and his wife and the friend and um, sad story, and now they're going to say that he just didn't get trained up well enough. Um, turns out this is not JFK Jr. This is JFK, I don't know if it's senior, but JFK the president, um, who it turns out actually took flying lessons back when he was in the military. Um, and uh, it's an interesting story, and I just I would, you know, anybody who's at all hist- curious about either history in general, aviation history, World War II history, JFK history, and any of these kind of things, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, um, it's an interesting story about how JFK uh, actually, and apparently this was after the whole PT-109 thing, right. and, and he was back in the, he had been rotated back to the States, I think the war was still going on, um, but he was rotated back to the States to Florida, I believe, um, and and there were there were like vague rumors that maybe he had taken some flying lessons, but nobody really knew for sure. And then someone found a logbook, I think, of of an instructor or something like that. Um, and 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 then did some really interesting sleuthing. This the articles talk about this, and that's this is the part that I thought was particularly interesting was the uh, the historical sleuthing that went on to to. To basically confirm this, now even the JFK historians, who initially knew nothing about this story, um, have looked at the uh, the evidence, if you will, and and agree that this is true. JFK uh, soloed. Um, apparently, he stopped at that point. He did not go on with the training, um, and it was and it was seaplane, right? It was a flow plane of some sort. Probably was. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so interesting story, and uh, I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that, but uh, I found this to be a fascinating story about President Kennedy um, back in the. the those are early days. Anything to add to that? No. No? No, but it does kind of explain John Jr.'s uh, well, drive, may- drive to become a pilot. Maybe. I mean, I don't know whether, you know, it, it sounds like it wasn't a big family thing because the historians were pretty pretty surprised by it. You know, it's not like it was part of the family history. Um, but maybe maybe Jr. knew that, that well, his dad... It, it, it was part of the family history because JFK's brother flew anti-submarine patrols out of england oh that's for sure yeah that that was well known in fact that's yeah. he, 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 he died. died he died in the explosion right, he died uh, doing that. in uh, in combat bomber, yeah, right. he was flying uh he was he was the aircraft commander right um it was a experimental uh high-risk mission right and i think it was a liberator b-24 liberator he was flying it um for one reason or another it exploded uh, during the mission right yeah and uh, <clears throat> that was uh 
the senior. That was Joe. He was the one who was supposed yeah. to be president. He was the one who was exactly. supposed to carry on the family thing, and then it fell to uh, yeah. to uh, John um, to uh, to do it. Anyways, interesting story. Uh, link in the show notes, um, or you can probably Google it and, and find the information. And yeah. uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, other shout outs, uh, David. What do you, you got? Something, David? Well, it saddens me to to, to bring this one up because uh, the, the uh, owner was a good friend of mine, Doug Jackson who uh, has for years flown uh, with the Taurus Squadron of the CAF. And Doug passed away from pancreatic cancer uh, a few weeks ago. And mm-hmm. his airplane, Tora 101, which was all over the movie Tora, 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 and then flown by the EAA for a while before Doug bought it, it's up for sale. It's a genuine movie star. It's a T6 modified to closely resemble a Japanese Zero. And it's in Japanese uh, uh, war paint uh, from World War II. We'll have a link on the page. They're asking 135000 for it. Uh, it's in annual. Uh, they're worthy. Doug could, took good care of his airplane. And uh, I encourage you, if you've ever had a, a hankering to own a movie star airplane or be the aggressor in a Pearl Harbor reenactment, uh, Tora 101 <laughs> will get you in the door. Okay. All right. Yes, and I'm sorry to hear about the passing of your friend, but it uh, uh, sounds like a very cool airplane. Yeah, yeah. Well, the link will get you all the information and the contact that you need to get a hold of. That's an- another friend of mine, T.W. Anderson. Excellent, excellent. Anything else, Jeb? We done? Yeah, one run real quick. And, yeah, and, and it's kind of sort of in the same vein as as uh, Dave's uh, uh, little shout out. Um, let us all take pause and bid farewell to Duots. <laughs> yeah, right. Has it Which, finally happened? It finally happened. Uh, the FAA pulled the plug back in mid May. Okay. Um, and uh, if you try to log into www.duats.com, you get a 404 error or some really? other kind of error. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's try this right now just to make sure. But uh, um, yeah. Let's have a moment of silence for Duats. A, a moment of silence for Duats. Um, Was it .com or org? .com. Um, the uh, FAA wants you to use www.duats.com. 1-800-WX-BRIEF.COM. Yeah. Right. And there's, you know, obviously there's aviationweather.gov, uh, which uh, uh, is also a, a, a government-supported site. Um, the punchline in all this is uh, Duat's kind of outlived its usefulness. Uh, back in the day, uh, it was pretty slick. Uh, but now we have so much weather information available through the Internet and through ADSB and uh, uh, other sources that uh, um, the contract was uh, simply allowed to terminate. Um, where all that will go, um, um, the 1-800-WXBrief.com uh, um, site is still up and running for the next couple of years. FAA is going through um, contract negotiations and, and redefinition of the problem um, to... Uh, um, what do they call it? Um, uh, let me find that phrase real quick. Um, they call it Future Flight Services Program. Um, FFSP, Foxtrot, Foxtrot, Sierra Papa. Uh, and uh, they're looking to try to uh, 
make a decision on what uh, the future of, of these services, flight services, will look like uh, over the next couple of years. Interesting. Yeah. The, only, world. the only constant is change. That's right. But it seems uh, faster and faster. I remember when Duots was brand new and nobody had heard of it and it was, you know, like, woohoo. And yeah. now it's. Well, now it's you know, back in, the, back in the day, when did Duats first go online? Like 89 or something like that. Uh, yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it was 1989. Um, uh, anyone, as I wrote in, in my article in, in, in July's Aviation Safety, so anyone with a 288 modem hooked up to a computer could dial up an FAA-approved weather service and obtain their flight planning information for free without needing to speak with a human. It was relatively slow, low-resolution service, but it worked. Yep. And, um, you know, they, they've obviously made a bunch of, had made a bunch of improvements to do ads over the years. Uh, but it is no longer. It is so, no longer. Fond yeah. farewell. Yeah. The internet tells me that the duots.com domain name was created on January 1st, 1985. Really? Uh, and it finally expired on May 29th, 2018. So, anyways. <laughs> all right. Uh, yes. Duots. Okay. Anyways, is that it? Fork time? Are we done? Fork time. Stick it. I think we're done. I think we're done. Thank you, guys. It's always a blast. I, uh, I enjoy talking with you. Um, we're getting into this morning thing. We used to record for years. We recorded in the afternoon. Um, we're recording in the morning now. I think we've gotten used to it. Um, yeah. Well, it's changed my drinking habits a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and it is a little problematic when I'm visiting California because uh, it's although it's 10 o'clock East Coast time, it's a little earlier for David in Central. But when I was in uh, on Pacific time... Um, it was a thing. It was also trains, but that was a whole other story. Um, but, uh, yeah. The, more well, I sim- the guy at the liquor store asked me why I'm not buying as much beer as I used to, and that's what I told him. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure if that's true, but I like it. It's a good story. Thank you, guys. Uh, Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer magazine. David, what have you been working on? Oh, tons. Uh, yeah. Let's see, I've got a piece in this month's uh, Ab Buyer magazine on uh, how to pick a maintenance uh, shop for your airplane. Uh, has some uh, information applicable to, no matter what you fly. And, and other than that, it's the same old, same old. Uh, my, doing my weekly business aviation blog for Av Buyer. Uh, we've got a couple of stories in this month's uh, avionics news. Uh, so we we're, we're, we're keeping busy. Yeah, very good. And where can people find out about you and all this stuff on the internet? Well, avbuyer.com, and you click on the magazine or the uh, blog's, uh, blog's uh, link, uh, aea.net for avionics news, or uh, do a wild card Google search, Dave Higdon and Aviation, and ignore the golf writer and the motorcycle writer and the theoretical physicist that publishes and i'll be the one that's left yeah okay if you say so you've been saying it for years we're gonna and on the twitter machine i'm real higdon real higdon and jeb burnside jeb's an aviation as a freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine jeb what have you been working on aviation safety magazine uh (laughs) july issue is in the can actually i just got uh hard copies Uh, so it's been in the can a couple of three weeks now but uh I uh, just got my hard copies yesterday. 
Um, which means uh, it's almost time to do it again. Which means it's almost time to do it again. Um, uh, cover story this month. Uh, I'm just going to give a plug for the magazine. Yeah. Cover story this month. You know, the FAA wants us to stay 20 miles from a thunderstorm. But thunderstorms have a lot of different parts yep. to them. Uh-huh. So which part is it we're supposed to stay 20 miles from? Uh, yeah, I've got well. a future article on that topic. Um, got another one here from uh, um, uh, a new new contributor to the magazine, Dave Kinney. Um, up talking about accident data, accident statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tagline, uh, no, numbers don't lie, but that doesn't mean they'll answer the questions you thought you were asking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds and, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we talk about, you know, engine failures. Well, unless some sheet metal gets bent, there's no requirement to report an engine failure. Um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Where can people find out about this and other things you're doing oh, on the internet? A- AviationSafetyMagazine.com uh, is the website, and uh, you can uh, sign up there, subscribe, do whatever you need to do. Um, until you subscribe, it's kind of hard to get to the content. So yeah, uh, that, you know that's that's not my uh, right. Uh, no, not my rice bowl. But uh, uh, also, uh, like Dave, I have a couple of articles in this month's uh, avionics news mm-hmm. uh, from uh, AEA. Um, AEA.net uh, is the place to check all that out, as Dave said. Um, and um, other stuff I'm doing uh, is just trying to keep body and soul headed in the right direction right now. There you go. Got a lot of little projects. There and, you go. Uh, some of them big, but uh, there you go. Yep. And uh, on Twitter? Oh. On the Twitter machine, Burnside J. There we go. There we go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. Uh, you, let's see now. Um, the day job's been taking up a lot of my time recently. Um, just got back from uh, uh, California where, we, where I was participating in a uh, – we, we were doing our part, which is a small part. Um, on uh, on one of our clients does a big developer conference um, every year, and so we were working on that. Um, had a chance; it was really cool. I had a chance to uh, sit down and have a chat with uh, a listener and friend of the podcast, Malcolm Tease, who is a, a developer in this world, and uh, he was there. And so we we sat down and chatted about tech and airplanes and global warming and sea level rise and all these kinds of fun things. So that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Um, Slowly working on uh, on video stuff as well. Um, the uh, the behind the scenes video from UCAP Daily from Sun and Fun UCAP Daily four four nine Bravo um, uh, is now public. Um, it was exclusive to uh, Patreon supporters, and that's been that way for about a month now, and uh, and it has now gone public. So if anybody's interested, uh, anybody can go to my YouTube channel and uh, and check out that that video, David. That's the one we did in the uh, sitting in the golf cart. At right. the uh, ultralight field, um, so uh, that's now um, available on on YouTube, um, and uh, you know just kind of work on on doing this podcast and, and doing other things. Uh, you can find me. Uh, my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, on Amazon, my eBooks are uh, you can find them by searching for Around the Field in the books section of Amazon. Follow me at Twitter, uh, where it's twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson, and sign up for my email newsletter. Learn more about me than you ever really wanted to know. Um, at jackhodgson.com David, was there something you wanted to tell us? Go fly for a long life because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan Bye-bye And that's enough talk and let's go flying And let's do it with Uncle Jeb's Backyard Afghans Ha <laughs> ha